Thank you, Bree, Steve, and our worship team. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jay, and it is a privilege to open the scriptures with you. I invite you to open to the book of Obadiah. Becky and I have had the privilege to be away the last couple of weeks on a study break, looking at next year's preaching schedule, and it's always a good thing to go down. We go down to South Carolina, as I say it, South Carolina, and uh, have a good time down there and are able to study. I want to thank Pastor Tim. Pastor Ron for filling the pulpit so well. And we joined in on live stream and it was enjoyable. It also reminded us there's nothing like being here in person. And live stream is not a substitute for in-person worship at all, but it is at least a technological thing we can do and gives us that advantage. Book of Obadiah. It is the shortest book in the Hebrew canon. Uh, in the Masoretic Hebrew text, 291 Hebrew words. It is a small book that raises a huge question. Does God have enemies? Uh, I'm going to begin with a true story about that very subject. A number of years ago, in our first church in southwest Minnesota, uh, I was a young pastor, and we got a call one night. We were on our way out the door to have pizza with uh, one of our elders and his wives. They were friends of ours. And just before we left, we got a phone call from an older couple. And I didn't know this couple. Becky and I didn't know them. We'd never met them before that we knew of. And they were very emphatic, the wife was, that they needed to see us that night. I mean, she was like insistent. We said, well, we're going out to dinner. How about if we swing by afterwards? This is a very rural community. I mean, the whole town is smaller than this congregation. And so we went out to dinner, and afterwards we stopped by this house. It was a big old farmhouse. It was a very, very hot, muggy August evening, and they had no air conditioning. The house was sealed up. It was like a sauna in there. We walk up. It's an elderly couple. He's a retired physician. He's a doctor, and they invited us in. They had the women sit in the parlor, and we went, the men, back to the study. So we sat down. And the gentleman spent a few minutes telling us, I'm a committed Christian. I've been in church all my life. I go to every prayer meeting. He wanted us to know that he was a very committed biblical Christian. So I finally said, well, your wife was very emphatic. You wanted us to come over tonight. What can we do for you? And he said, well, I want you to look at this. And he handed me a, a, a typed manuscript of a book he'd written on Christian ethics as a, as a doctor, as a physician. He said, turn to such and such a page. So I turned. And it was a chapter on abortion. And he wanted me to look at it. And it was very clear, glancing through it, he was pro-abortion. And he clearly was looking for some kind of a conservative evangelical pastor that would endorse the book. And I'm looking at it and I said, so what is it you want? I said, did you want to know what I think about abortion? Well, I've been to your church and this and that. And I said, okay, I don't have any memory of meeting you. And, uh, but finally he said, yeah, I, I want to know what you think. Clearly, again, he's looking for someone to endorse this. And just before I answered, he said, no one, he said it with this intensity, no one will ever tell me abortion is murder and say it twice. So I looked down and I thought, okay, Jay, what are you going to do here? <laughs> he said, yes, well, I want to know what you think. And I said, I looked up and I said, abortion is murder and abortion is murder. And <laughs> he, I said it, I mean, I said it gently, but I said it, he what I experienced at that very moment uh, was one of the most furious eruptions we've ever seen in ministry, I've ever seen. He stood up, he was an older guy, stood up, 
with great anger, intense anger. And I, I think what's going on here is I'm talking to someone who had performed abortions and the guilt had consumed him over the years. He stood up, he pointed at me, I'm only about three or four feet away, and he said, you, sir, are a liar. And he said, no, you are a black liar from the pit of hell. And so I stood up. Now, my friend, our elder, who was with me, kind of a relaxed guy, he's like, well, let's talk this through. And I said, we're not talking. And then the, then the physician started swearing at us and just started expletive after expletive. He was so angry. I literally was watching his hands because he was that angry. I thought he was going to pick up a gun. He was, he was just out of control. And I said to Joe, I said, Joe, get up. We're leaving. I, and I turned to him and I said, you, sir, have a dirty mouth. And I we started walking out. And he's just swearing. He's following me out. My wife is out in the parlor with Joe's wife. Becky's eight months pregnant. So we'll get her up off the couch. And, I said, and he yelled at us all the way to our car. And he made it very clear that if God has an enemy on this planet, I was that enemy. And I was the worst kind of enemy God could possibly have. It was an interesting evening. We drove away, and this elder said to me, uh, by the way, don't ever ask us to go on pastoral visitation with you ever again. <laughs> I said, oh, this is just a normal day in the life of a pastor. I mean, no big deal. Does God have enemies? If so, who are they? What do they look like? What exactly makes them an enemy? If you listen to a lot of preaching or liberal clergy in our day or in days gone by, you would think God has no enemies, that everybody's in the kingdom of God. And yet when you go to the Bible, it's very clear in passage after passage, God says, I have enemies. Nahum chapter 1, we'll look at it in a couple weeks. Verse 2, God reserves wrath for his enemies. Couldn't be a lot clearer. Or in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3 verse 18, Paul speaks of enemies of the cross of Christ. And so there are abundant passages that speak of God having enemies. And so the question before us this morning, kids, young people, adults, who's an enemy of God? What makes them an enemy? And how can I avoid being his enemy? Because it's very clear in the Bible that most of those named, or at least some of those named as enemies, are religious people who thought they were friends of God. And Jesus or the prophets made it very clear they were not friends of God. They were, in fact, enemies. And so we have a chilling warning in Obadiah about what it is an enemy and not being one and how to make sure I am a friend of God. And so we're going to look at this. It is one chapter, as Heather said. It's the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible. And it divides pretty easily into three parts or three really sections in Obadiah. First of all, in verses 1 to 14, is a very clear section on judgment on Edom. Then the scope broadens in the next few verses, and there's judgment pronounced on all the nations surrounding Israel and Edom. And then thirdly, the book ends with a very strong promise of God's kingdom restored. So very negative, but it ends on a very strong note of positive acclamation. First of all, judgment on Edom, verses 1 to 14. Just a brief reminder about the minor prophets. We're in a series called the minor prophets. They're not called that in the Bible. They're called that by word count compared to what we call the major prophets, which are longer. Books like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, they're longer. The minor prophets are called that simply because they tend to be shorter. The nickname probably came from St. Augustine in the 4th century. But their message is anything but minor. The minor prophets wrote at a very specific time in Israel's history. 
They wrote over a 300-year period, roughly 7 B.C. to 450 B.C. That's helpful. Roughly 750 to 450 B.C. And what's interesting about them is they emphasize the character of God, specifically three things about God. His sovereignty, His holiness, and His love. God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and love come through over and over again in the minor prophets. And the sub-theme for our series is entitled God's Word for Troubled Times. That is really what you have coming at you in the minor prophets. All right, that brings us to the book of Obadiah. I want to throw out three questions as we jump into this. I don't know when the last time you heard a sermon on Obadiah was. I assume it's probably been a while. So let's start basic, let's start high level. Who was this guy? Well, according to chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says of Edom. And there's several Obadiahs in the Old Testament. This particular Obadiah was one who lived around 586 B.C., roughly about the time that Israel was taken captive by Babylon. His name means worshiper of Yahweh. And again, our best guess is he's writing to the southern kingdom. Remember, 300 years or so before this, Israel had a civil war. Their nation divided into two parts. Ten tribes in the north, called Israel. Two tribes in the bottom, called Judah. The ten tribes at this point are gone. Assyria came in and obliterated them. So there's only the bottom nation left, the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And Obadiah is writing to those two tribes to warn them that the same thing that happened to their northern neighbors is going to happen to them if they don't repent and get their act together. You'd think they'd listen. They did not. So he's writing around 590 B.C., roughly. Secondly, who are the Edomites? He's writing about the Edomites. Who, who are these? Well, look at verse 1. This is what the Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her battle. Let us go against her for battle. So, the Edomites were a people related to the Hebrews. That's what you need to know. Jacob and Esau, twins, these are their descendants. So they are relatives. That's going to be a key here. Uh, in Genesis 36, verse 1, by the way, Esau is called Edom. And the, the, the name Esau and Edom both come from the same Hebrew root, root word, which means red. And it probably comes from the reddish sandstone in this region. The Edomites settled in the mountains just south of the Dead Sea. And their capital became known as modern-day Petra in Jordan. Let me show you a couple pictures just to give you an idea. It's always important, by the way, remember, the Bible's telling us about things that really happen. Unlike the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, unlike some of the Hindu scriptures or the Buddhist scriptures, many of which are just rooted in mythology, the Bible wants you to know these things really took place Here's where they happened. Here's who was in power at the time. Here's the geography and topography of where these events occurred. And that's a reminder of the inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word. So where, where's ancient Edom? Well, it's actually there. Small text box in the corner, you see. Edom, just south of the Dead Sea. It is in modern, it was in ancient Israel. This was part of the borders in ancient Israel. Now today it's in modern day Jordan. I'll show you a couple of pictures. You'll get an idea why it's called red. 
the movie Matt from Matt Damon, The Martian, was actually filmed in Jordan. Been a number of different movies filmed. They use it because it looks like Mars. It's barren. It's searing hot desert. It's red sandstone. The next photo you'll see is of Petra. This was the capital. It's called Sela or Sela in the book of Obadiah. But this is exactly where the Edomites lived. The last photo will show you their homes in the cleft of the rocks. This will also be mentioned in Obadiah. So just a reminder, this was a real place. These were real people. This is historically true. This stuff really happened. Obadiah is not just making this up. This took place. So that is who the Edomites were. Third question, well, why were they such enemies of God? I mean, the language in Obadiah is very strong, like a lot of the prophets. Why were these people the enemies of God? And the answer is threefold. And so we, well, I'm going to give you the three, but then I'll unpack each of them. And these have great relevance for any of us today who might be an enemy of God. Just because we're in a worship service, just because we're singing hymns, or singing songs. Just because we're reading our Bible, doing liturgy, or you've been baptized or go to church doesn't mean you are a friend of God. Many religious people are enemies of God. And so we want to ask ourselves, could any of the following things be true of me? Here's the three reasons Edomites were enemies of God. Number one, for excessive pride and despising God. Excessive pride and despising God. We'll dig into that in a second. Number two, for violence against their own relatives. This is viewed as especially egregious and evil. And number three, violence against God's people to boot. So, number one, excessive pride, despising God. Two, violence against the relative. Three, violence against God's people. Let's take those one at a time. First of all, look at verses two to four. Excessive pride, despising God. And God had said, I had enough, I've had enough, and judgment is coming against the Edomites. Verse 2 through 4. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. So there it is. There's the charge. You who lived in the clefts of the rocks, you saw the photographs of the homes in the clefts of the rocks. And the, actually in the Hebrew there, the ancient name for Petra's used, Sela. And make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? That's not a very good thing to level at God or challenge him to do. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So the first sin, despising God, excessive pride, was their preeminent sin. The Edomites were proud, they were smug, and they were arrogant. Look at verse 2 for a second. You'll see the word despised in English, in virtually every English translation. You will be utterly despised. It's the last phrase in verse 2. The word translated despised here in English is a Hebrew word, bazaar. What's interesting is that same exact word is used in Genesis 25 verse 34 where it's used of Esau and the text says Esau despised his birthright bizarre he despised his birthright what does that mean we're told that Esau despised his God-given role his God-given call his birthright he threw it to the he despised it and in doing so, he despised God. And here, that same word then comes full circle. And now we're told 
that the nations now will come to utterly despise Esau in the same way that he despised God. And the most shocking detail of all this is in verses 6 and 7. Their whole downfall, their destruction, and their demise will be headed by their former allies, their former friends. Verses 6 and 7. But how Esau will be ransacked, his, treasure, his hidden treasures pillaged. And then notice verse 7. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. So those that were Edom's allies, their friends, the ones they trusted, will actually be the ones that God turns against them. Verses 8 through 9. In that day declares the Lord, I, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors, Taman, will be terrified. And everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. So you have very strong language about Edom's excessive pride and arrogance and defiance of God. I think one of my favorite, I'd say favorite, the most insightful passages I've ever read about pride, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Some of you probably read it. His quote just nails it. He says, in God you come up against something which is in yourself remarkably superior to yourself in every way. So in God you come up against something in comparison to yourself which is remarkably superior to yourself in every way. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. Then his next phrase is the core of his quote. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up every possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Close quote. And that is why those who are driven by pride end up doing things that are just absolutely insane, never considering the consequences of their actions. They've been blinded by hatred for God, hatred for others. Second reason that Edom was declared an enemy is what they did to their own relatives. If you look at verse 10, they not only committed violence against their own relatives as others pillaged the Hebrews, the Jews, the Edomites sat back and just gloated about it. And God calls them on the carpet for that. Verse 10, because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. So violence against their own relatives, because of the violence against your brother. These were relatives. If you look at verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in his day of misfortune. So they were called on the carpet for violence against their own relatives. And the third reason they're enemies is because not only were the Jews their relatives, they were also God's chosen people. And there's a distinction made here that that is a separate reason for judgment, violence against God's people. If you look at verses 11 and 12, on the day you stood aloft while strangers carried off his wealth, speaking of Israel's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, so they were pillaged, they were ransacked, they were attacked, and the Edomites just sat there and watched it all and gloated. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. There's your key verse right there. Nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. What 
Why would God call him on the carpet for that? Because of a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Do you know that promise? When God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, he made a promise to him. He said, and anybody who blesses you, I will bless him. And anybody who curses you, I will curse them. And if one thing's clear from looking at history, rulers, leaders, and nations that have aligned with Israel, there has been a certain blessing that's come from God. And those that lined up against Israel have suffered demise at the hand of God. And that's been very clear over the years, watching again and again and again. Why? Because they stood against God's people. I want to turn to one other passage that talks about the demise of the Edomites for this very sin, Ezekiel chapter 25. If you go back to Ezekiel, one of what we call the major prophets, who wrote at the same time, basically a contemporary of Obadiah, Ezekiel, he writes about the Edomites and their fall. Chapter 25, verses 12 to 14. Ezekiel 25, 12 to 14. The Edomites became vicious enemies of God's people, and thus they became targets of the wrath of God. And Ezekiel writes even with more pointed force. Ezekiel 25, verses 12 to 14. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because Edom took revenge on Judah and became very guilty by doing so. Verse 13, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and kill both man and beast. I will lay it waste. And from Taman to Dedan, they will fall by the sword. I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they will deal with Edom in accordance with my anger and my wrath. And they will know my vengeance declares the sovereign Lord. Now, these kind of verses make some people very uncomfortable, but we have to take God's word at face value. We have to let God speak, and we have to ask, what's the text say? The text is very clear. God is a loving God. He's a merciful God, but he's also a God of judgment and justice and wrath, and he does have enemies, and he says, eventually, I am done in patience with my enemies, and they will receive my wrath. Interesting, Edom's wrath against God's people carries over to the New Testament. How so? Well, King Herod, remember there's six King Herods in the New Testament, but Herod the Great, the first one, was part Edomite. It's said he's from a region called Edomia, which is simply a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Edom. And so Herod, who attacked God's people by trying to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, eventually himself dies and is now on the dustbin of history and his family line disappears. God is very clear. Touch my people and you will face the consequences. That is the third reason Edom was declared an enemy of God. So excessive pride and despising of God, violence against their relatives and violence against the people of God. That brings us to the second major part of Obadiah. If you go back and that is the next verses, and that's verse roughly 15 through verse 18, broadens the judgment of God beyond Edom to the nations surrounding ancient Israel. So verses 15 through verse 18, Obadiah now announces judgment and God's wrath beyond Edom to the nations surrounding Israel for their sin, their wickedness, 
their violence and their rebellion. And the same principle, friends, young people get this, the same principles at work. Touch the people of God and you will deal with the wrath of God. Verses 15 to 17. The day of the Lord is near. I'll come back to that. That's a phrase we've been introduced to in Joel. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. So now we've gone beyond just Edom. We're all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. That's a chilling verse. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Go back to verse 15. See that phrase, day of the Lord? We already met that in Joel. The day of the Lord is a common theme in the prophets. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was a time of judgment and punishment for sin. And in the Old Testament, a number of these foreign invasions were called days of the Lord, kind of a smaller case day of the Lord. But ultimately, the Bible says there will be an ultimate day of the Lord when all people and all peoples will stand before God either to be rewarded or judged according to what they have done. So just to be clear, Obadiah is telling us God has enemies. They're spoken of frequently in the Bible. And what makes someone an enemy of God, hear this, is pride, opposing God, and opposing God's people, and rebellion, and lack of repentance. And the question that has to be asked this morning, could that be describing you? There are many who sit in churches every week, across the fruited plain and across the world, who appear to be very religious, but ultimately, Bible says, they would be an enemy. The Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, who were esteemed by the people. It's very clear. Some of the most extreme, as far as religious people in Jesus' day, Jesus was abundantly clear in Matthew 23, were some of God's worst enemies. And so the question has to be asked. Third part, in the last part of Obadiah, verses 19 to 21, you have all this severe language of judgment against Edom and then against the nations. But then in verses 19 to 21, things shift and you end on a very positive note. God's kingdom restored. In the final verses, the Lord gives hope through Obadiah. And here's what we're told. We're told that all of Israel will one day possess all the land God promised and it will be restored to them. You say, well, don't they have their nation now? Yeah, since May 1948, 75 years ago this year, Israel was given back their land, but it's not all the land they originally had. They're only about two-thirds of what they originally were in the biblical borders. One day, God says, oh, and we know that because what's interesting is in verses 19 to 20, Obadiah gives the original geographic borders as promised in the Old Testament. And the point here is God is on the move, and he will restore his sovereign rule over his people. And when you say his people, you say, well, am I one of his people? Well, the Bible is very clear in the New Testament that if you know Christ as Savior, I know some of us here do, some of us don't, but if you know Christ as Savior, if you've been born again, the New Testament says you're one of his people and will be grafted in, in, in the book of Romans, to his people. And it's very clear here, God will restore People. So verse 21 closes Obadiah with this promise of a final restoration of an expanded Israel in God's kingdom, which is still future. Verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion, this is still future, to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's.
And so like in the prophets, you often have thundering language of judgment and then you have these very strong statements of God's promise to his people and to those who surrender to him. All right, bottom line this morning. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. But it needs to be said very clearly. The Bible is very clear. There's only one way not to be an enemy of God. And that's not by being religious or going to church or getting baptized or doing volunteer work. Those are all good, but none of those save you. You can do all that stuff and go to hell. So the question is, how can I make sure this morning, kids or young people or adults, how can you make sure today you're not an enemy of God, according to the Bible? And here's the answer. I'm going to give the answer in one phrase, and I'm going to unpack it for a moment. The answer is, the way not to be God's enemy is to surrender to Jesus as Savior. And I use the word surrender deliberately because when you think of surrendering in a battle, it brings to mind very clear imagery and attitude and word and even posture when you see somebody who has surrendered. Now, here's the big picture according to the Bible. As we're getting ready to land the plane, let me just kind of un un unpack this. The Bible says we have a loving Heavenly Father who was on a rescue mission to save lost sinners. The Bible says the moment I was born, the moment we were conceived, we were cut off from God in rebellion and in sin. And we are held accountable for those sins. The Bible uses some pretty strong language to describe people who are not saved, alienated from God, enemies of God. That's our natural state coming out of the womb. We're, to call, we're called enemies of God. We're called sinners. We're called all kinds of very unflattering terms. Now, about this point, it's very interesting. Non-religious people will often say something like this. I'm not an enemy of God. I just don't believe in God, but I, I'm not a declared enemy of him. Or religious people will often say something like this. I'm not alienated from God. I'm trying to live a decent life. I'm trying to obey the golden rule. I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments. I'm not an enemy of God. In response to this kind of thinking, the Apostle Paul, especially in Romans, Galatians, and Colossians, does a brilliant job of deconstructing religion. He says this. He says, when you say, I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments, I'm trying to live a good life, he says, you know what you're really doing? You're saying, I'm trying to be my own savior. I'm trying to take control. And Paul says, what you're really doing is you're fighting God at that very moment. That's why some of the most moral people are really some of the greatest enemies of God. They're refusing to admit that deep down, they're really proud. Their hearts are polluted. Their hearts are sinful. They're moral failures, and they can't keep God's law. The Bible is very clear. None of us can keep the law of God. We can't save ourselves, and we need a Savior, someone who did it for us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that's where the gospel comes in. The Bible says that God sent his only son, Jesus, to be the Savior and to reconcile God's enemies to himself. And the imagery the New Testament uses is very specific and powerful. The imagery is of enemies being reconciled to God and God not judging them. And the imagery is borrowed from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the angel of death came and killed all the firstborn in Egypt. 
But when the angel of death went through Egypt that night, God said, if there is lamb's blood on your doorframe, the angel of death will do what? He will pass over that house and not judge it. And nobody will be killed. They will be safe. And it's not an accident that in Mark 14, Jesus is called the Passover lamb for those who believe. And here's how to be saved according to the Bible. I own my sin. I repent of my sin. And I believe Jesus is the son of God. And I surrender to him. And the Bible says, if that's true of you, on judgment day, God will pass over you in judgment. Just like the angel of death passed over the Hebrews in Egypt. That is how not to be an enemy of God. Has nothing to do with good works, nothing to do with trying to be a good person, nothing to do with trying to obey the Ten Commandments. Those are a farce. We can't do them. Has everything to do with casting ourselves on the mercy of God and pleading with Him for forgiveness and surrendering to Jesus as Savior. That is how to be saved. And it's the most glorious truth in the Bible. I started with a true story from our previous church in Minnesota years ago. I end with a story from that same church just a few years ago. We were coming home from out west seeing our folks. And we stopped by to see a young couple who had been in that church. They now lived in Iowa. And we spent an evening with them. He had been a bank executive. And unfortunately, he got caught with fraud, embezzlement, and went to prison. From the time he had left the church and we had known them. They had been religious in our previous church, but I don't think they were Christians. However, like happens so often, somewhere along the line, I think in prison, he got saved. And a couple years ago, when we were sitting in their living room, the man we sat with that night was a different human being. You know what I'm talking about? Different human being, different demeanor, different attitude. He was just different. He was born again. It was very evident. There was light in his eyes. There was joy. He was saved. He had believed the gospel. He had been adopted into the family of God. He was no longer an enemy of God. And he was a beloved son and part of the family of God. That is what the gospel does. And that is how not to be an enemy of God. Father, we thank you for Obadiah. And we confess, we ignore parts of the Bible like this sometimes because they just seem strange to us. And yet, Father, thank you that this man really existed, that he was called of you, that he was faithful to you, and that you inspired him to write a prophecy, a warning, not only to the people of his day, but to us today. We know these things were written to us today. So I want to pray for two very specific groups here this morning. I want to pray for those who are truly saved and born again, that you would put in us a passion to spread your fame, to share the gospel with our kids, to evangelize our kids and our grandkids and those around us, and to live faithfully holy lives for you. I also want to pray here this morning, Father, I know there are those here today who may be religious, but they're lost, that you would open their eyes and bring them to Jesus as Savior, and that they too would surrender that even today might be the day of their salvation. And thank you for the gospel. Thank you for other gospel-preaching churches in our area. We pray for a great blessing on them and that the kingdom of God would be expanded even this day throughout our region by new believers coming to surrender to Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty and glorious and global name. Amen.